Hello and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Tom Seymour, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined today by my colleague William Sternheimer, a partner at the firm and previously Deputy Secretary General of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, known as CAS. We are very happy that we also have with us, firstly, Jennifer Kirby. Jennifer is the principal of Kirby Arbitration and is a recognised expert in arbitration, who was previously Deputy Secretary General of the ICC International Court of Arbitration. Jennifer now sits as an arbitrator in a wide variety of matters and, importantly for today's purposes, is a current CAS arbitrator. Second, we're joined by Andrew McDougall QC. Andrew is a partner at White & Case who specialises in arbitration. Amongst other roles, Andrew represents Canada on the ICC court. He is also a current CAS arbitrator and recently sat in the proceedings between Manchester City and UEFA. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the CAS. In particular, we will be exploring some of the differences between commercial arbitration and sports law arbitration at the CAS. So let's move on to the discussion. The first question is, what are the most notable differences between commercial arbitration and sports law arbitration at the CAS? For me, the most important difference and actually what makes me so interested in sports cases is the very personal quality that many of them have. Many of the cases where I've sat for the CAS concern allegations of doping or issues of qualification, who gets to compete in a given event. So these are cases that are highly personal. There are individuals involved and their careers are involved. This is very different than in most of my commercial cases, which are far drier and usually just involve corporate entities. So for me, the sports work, I find it very personally compelling. And that's why I really enjoy doing it. Andrew, what do you think of the differences between commercial arbitration and CAS arbitration? I thought I'd touch upon two procedural differences. One is time. In the sports cases, so often time is of the essence as opposed to commercial cases. And that's not to say there are commercial cases where time is important, but the way the CAS is structured, proceedings are conducted in remarkably short periods and go extremely fast from the initiation of a proceeding to an award by a panel can take only a few months, which in most commercial cases is completely unrealistic. The rules aren't set up that way. The parties don't wish to conduct it that way. And you can often end up with cases that are 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, or a few years, which is completely different from my experience in sports arbitration. The other procedural difference, which is quite interesting as a panel member, is there's an enormous amount of support from the CAS Secretariat. In particular, the CAS Secretariat acts as a buffer between the tribunal and the parties when it comes to the conduct of the proceedings with correspondence and briefs and so on. When you conduct, as Jennifer and I have many times, a commercial arbitration as arbitrator, even if there's an arbitral institution, the tribunal spends a lot of time dealing with correspondence by email and by letter to and from the parties and issuing numerous procedural orders and so on all the way to inclusion of the proceedings. In the CAS procedure, the CAS secretary plays a very active role in managing that process and it makes for a, a different experience as an arbitrator. And the CAS panel is in some ways able to really concentrate on the merits of the case. And it's probably one of the reasons why you can do the cases in a much shorter, shorter period of time. I think it, it goes to Jennifer's point, which is these cases are 
very personal, often about people's careers or, or organizations being able to function, federations and the like being able to function. And time is so often of the essence. And if the proceedings are going to be conducted quickly and efficiently and effectively, you have to have a structure that allows for that. And commercial arbitration has a constant struggle with this. This is, you know, arbitration, if we take it in a larger sense, one of its selling features for so long was it was speed. And as we know, in commercial arbitration, that has become a, a hot topic for a number of years. And uh, all the commercial arbitral institutions are trying, have tried to adapt their rules to allow for expedited procedures, as, uh, you know, sole arbitrator, fast track, all kinds of different terms of art. And I think the CAS has set up a structure which meets that goal, you know, given the nature, as Jennifer said, the substance of these cases. Clearly, it's needed because you don't want CAS proceedings that go on for three years. It wouldn't make any sense. Tom, if I could just add to that, I'll say that as somebody who principally sits in commercial cases, at first, I was a little uncomfortable with the idea that I was not going to be having sort of a direct connection with the parties for all aspects of the procedure, that there was this institution between me and the parties who was going to be handling most, if not all, communications between us, except, of course, for the hearing where we would be all together in a room. But I have to say that now that I've done CAS cases and had that experience, I have to say that I actually find it very helpful and very useful to have the CAS between me and the parties, in part because of what Andrew was saying, that it just helps things run much more efficiently. And also, the people who work at the CAS, the council who work at the CAS, are just of phenomenal quality in terms of the quality of, of their work and their expertise. So I really appreciate their role between me and the parties in CAS cases. Finally, I'll come to you, William. I'm sure you would agree that the people who work at the CAS are of phenomenal quality. But do you have any other thoughts in terms of this first question? I won't judge the quality of the work of the other people working at CAS, otherwise I would sound very pretentious. Uh, no, one of the main differences, and in my opinion, which I'll focus on, and which is not really in terms of procedure or in terms of, of the personal aspect that uh, either Jenny or, or Andrew mentioned, is, is about costs. Having worked in commercial arbitration also for a few years before joining CAS, I know that commercial arbitration tends to be quite expensive. Obviously, the amounts in disputes in commercial arbitrations are, are usually very high, while they are not, especially in, in CAS cases. Uh, CAS costs tend to remain reasonable, although I've heard many parties uh, during my years at CAS complaining about the increase of the arbitration costs, but they are still very reasonable. The, the arbitrator's fees are quite low uh, if you are to compare those fees to the ones that they are earning when, when sitting in commercial arbitrations. And, and one of the main difference, and, and I think CAS is, is the only arbitral institution in the world offering this, is legal aid, which allows individuals without the financial resources to go to CAS and, and go to arbitration in general to be granted legal aid, which means that CAS would cover the arbitration costs for the parties without the sufficient means, financial means, to access justice through arbitration. 
This is probably due to the fact that sports arbitration is kind of imposed on the athletes. So they have to go to arbitration, while commercial arbitration is really a choice. But CAS has implemented this legal aid system in order really to balance the costs of arbitrations. And I I think this is really a, a specificity of CAS. My next question is, all CAS arbitrations are ceased in Switzerland. Do you think that such a restriction on the parties is justified in order to ensure procedural consistency? I would say yes. I mean, in part because of the procedural consistency issue, but also because Switzerland is an excellent place of arbitration. Its track record of enforcing arbitration agreements and awards is very long and very well established. And it also has just an excellent system for challenges against awards that have been rendered that goes extremely quickly. So even in other arbitration-friendly jurisdictions, sometimes when an award is challenged, it can take a very long time for the courts to actually decide the challenge to that award. But that's not the case in Switzerland. So I actually think that Switzerland is an excellent seat. I really appreciate when I'm sitting as arbitrator that I am sitting in Switzerland. Some people hold the view that the grounds for challenging an award at the Swiss Federal Tribunal are too limited. What do you say to that? I don't think that it's too limited. Of course, I am an arbitration person. So from my vantage point, I don't consider it good when a jurisdiction has wider and wider grounds to challenge awards. That's not something that I would consider an advantage of a particular place of arbitration. So to the extent that Switzerland has very clear and limited grounds for challenging awards, that, in my view, makes it a a good place of arbitration. That doesn't undermine its value as a place of arbitration. So for me, that's that's still a selling point. And Andrew, if I can come to you, what do you think of the fact that all CAS arbitrations are seated in Switzerland? I think it's a very positive fact, very supportive of the purpose for which CAS arbitration exists. And I think coming back to the discussion you were just having with Jennifer, for me, the distinction is, do you wish to have an appeal procedure or do you wish to have a challenge procedure? If what people would want is some sort of a appeal option from CAS arbitration, CAS awards, that is something entirely different than you know a final arbitral award within the meaning of the New York Convention, which has been around now for what is it, 60, 62 years. In my view, Switzerland is as good as any other jurisdiction in the world in terms of its track record, as Jennifer was saying, in supporting the principles of that New York Convention, which has really stood the test of time. So as long as we're talking about final arbitral awards, which I support, obviously I'm an arbitration practitioner, so I believe in uh, the value of that, Switzerland is as good a place as any. And by having it always in the same jurisdiction applying the same underlying law, you have the support of that consistency. But not only that, an additional feature, Jennifer mentions it goes fast, it goes to the top court in the country. It doesn't go to a lower court, which then can go to another court. It goes straight to the Swiss Federal Tribunal. And then there's the fact that Switzerland remains widely perceived as a neutral jurisdiction, as a neutral country. And uh, some of the cases that go to CAS, involve national sports federations or international sports organizations, involve uh, sometimes you know, political issues or arguably political issues. One can think of some of the cases arising out of recent Olympics 
And having a go, ultimately, if a challenge is going to be brought before the Swiss Federal Tribunal, straight away, I think is pretty much as good as you could find around the world today. Now, I've got one further Switzerland-focused question, and that's as follows. As regards ordinary arbitration proceedings, the CAS Code provides that where the parties have not chosen a substantive law to govern the merits, Swiss law will apply, rather than the tribunal being permitted to apply the national law, which it considers to be most appropriate. Do you think that such a restriction is justified, or are you of the view that greater flexibility should be provided to the arbitrators? So I will come to one of our arbitrators first, and I will ask Andrew. I think it's a wise choice to approach it this way, really from a consistency point of view. I mean, there are pros and cons to both approaches. I think that obviously... Cast panels vary from one panel to the other in terms of their makeup. It could be a sole arbitrator or a three-arbitrator uh, panel. And given the circumstances of a particular case, you could find a substantive law that is most closely connected, which is not Swiss law. If you were to apply that, that test or the voie directe, as some espouse, particularly in France. But you would end up with more CAS jurisprudence under different laws Ultimately, any challenges would still be going before the Swiss Federal Tribunal. To me, it's a better choice to pick consistency. And it's a bit like the Convention on the International Sale of Goods. You know, it's, it's in reverse. So, you know, if, you're, if you have a sale of goods case and the CISG applies, well, the terms of the CISG apply. And it's only if it's silent, you then turn to, to a, a domestic law. Here, it's the reverse. You allow the parties to have chosen, but if they haven't, you have Swiss law there underneath, you know, ready to kick in if needed. And I think that is a more consistent approach. And in, in these types of sports disputes, consistency is, I think, to be supported. And Jennifer or William, do you, do you have anything to add? I agree with everything that Andrew said. I would also say that, to me, this is another advantage of CAS arbitration, because in commercial arbitration, there are often all kinds of issues about applicable law that then the parties have to brief, and often you have to decide those issues before you can then get briefing on the substantive merits of the case so that the parties know what law they should be briefing under. And this all takes time and money, and particularly in the context of sports arbitration, which, as Andrew and William have said, is often very fast moving and has to be very fast moving. Dispensing with any issues of applicable law right away is extremely helpful. I also think that in addition to the kind of consistency that Andrew was talking about, it also helps to develop an evolving expert sports arbitration bar. So obviously, you know, Morgan Sports Law is part of that. But having almost, you know, nearly all issues decided substantively under Swiss law really helps us have a, a really dedicated sort of sports bar that is truly expert in the legal issues that come up often repeatedly in CAS cases. So I also think it's very helpful for that because one of the things that I really appreciate when I sit at the CAS is the quality of counsel is often extremely high and they have very deep and focused 
expertise in sports law, which is usually under Swiss law. And, and that's something that helps me as an arbitrator to understand the case and come to the right decision. And William, have you got anything to add? Because I don't want to agree on everything that Jennifer and, and Andrew are saying, I'll have a different approach. I, I think that ordinary arbitrations are not, let's say, do not necessitate the same degree of urgency and, and efficiency than appeals cases. So resorting to Swiss law as a subsidiary in appeals cases where time is of essence, I agree. I fully concur with them. Now, in ordinary arbitrations, which are more commercial arbitrations by nature, they are contractual disputes, I think Swiss law, as a matter of consistency, is good to apply in international disputes. Now, when you face a, a national disputes, so you've got, for I don't know, for example, a French player playing in a French club, and in their contract, they insert the cast clause where no provision is in the contracts providing for which law would be applicable to the merits of any dispute, then it would mean that in a purely national case, Swiss law would be applicable as a subsidiary. And in some cases, that could be a concern in terms of legitimate expectations from the parties when not knowing what the dispute will be or if a dispute will arise, and then having to face the application of a law to which they they are totally unfamiliar with. So that's the only the only little criticism I would mention in terms of the provision of CAS in, in this respect. Let's talk now about arbitrators. As many of our listeners will be aware, the CAS utilizes a closed list of arbitrators. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of that system? I would say that the advantage is that that the CAS is of course vetting people who are appearing in its cases and accepts onto the list people that it considers have the relevant expertise. So when you look, when you're selecting an arbitrator from the list, I think it gives parties confidence that they are selecting somebody who is an appropriate person to be sitting in a sports arbitration. Of course, the downside is that it's not as flexible. So it is a hurdle to get onto the cast list. It's, it's something that is a kind of gate that keeps many people from sitting in cast cases. It's not as flexible as in commercial arbitration where the parties can just pick anybody they want. Personally, I think that particularly given the nature of cast cases, and again, given the, the personal nature of many cases and the very specific knowledge and expertise that you need in these cases, I think it's, it's appropriate for the cast to have a closed list. But I can imagine other people having different views on that. I share Jennifer's view, and I think it comes back to the question of what, do you, what is cast trying to serve as a purpose? And if you think back to one of the comments made by William about cost, and we spoke about speed, if CAS wishes to provide, in effect, a less expensive, faster type of proceeding to resolve disputes in the sports world by way of arbitration, rather than a commercial arbitration type procedure, which can get very expensive, and uh, the parties have to support the costs of the arbitrators and of possibly an institution. Whereas here, CAS, in large part, subsidizes a lot of the conduct of the proceedings, I think a trade-off of that in order to be able to achieve it is to have arbitrators who already start 
from a certain level of knowledge and experience, because otherwise the learning curve can be really steep. Cast panels are being asked in a very short period of time with you know, a limited number of briefs and, and you know, submissions and evidence to make decisions. And uh, those decisions will be a better quality and more consistent if the cast panel members uh, have experience already. So it's a, it, to me, it's a trade-off. And, and the way to make that system work is obviously to maintain that list, to keep it fresh and to keep it diverse, to keep it uh, sufficiently large. You know, one can debate what is the right uh, size of list, uh, what's the right diversity, how often should it be renewed, and so on, all of which are legitimate questions. And William, what are your views on the on the closed list? No, I, I fully agree with Jennifer and with Andrew on this one, obviously. And and like Andrew was saying, the the list today I think comprises more than four hundred fifty names. So I, I would understand the criticism against the closed list if you had only ten, twenty, thirty names to choose your arbitrator from. But when you have a list as large as the one that CAS has then obviously the criticism is, is not as serious, in my opinion, as it would be otherwise. In appeal proceedings, the president of the appeals division appoints the panel chair rather than the party-nominated arbitrator selecting the chair. What are your views on that approach? I actually appreciate this aspect of the CAS rules because I think we've seen time and again in the various statistical reports on diversity that institutions are generally at the forefront of appointing new people, new faces. And this is what I've experienced at the cast myself when I first started sitting, is that the institution is really proactively trying to you know, raise new arbitrators. Once you get on the list, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get appointed. And particularly if you are not necessarily well known to the other people on the list or to counsel in the sports world, the institution is really your avenue to get appointments when you're a young CAS arbitrator. And I think the institution really makes an effort to raise up the, the next generation of arbitrators on the list. So I have found that to be a real positive of the way the CAS rules are, are currently drafted. Is that something you agree with, Andrew? Yes, it is. And I think Jennifer and William bring a very good perspective to this discussion, having both served you know, high-level positions in arbitral institutions, one being CAS, one being the ICC, two of the leading ones in the world. And there's no question, if you look back in history, when you look at the statistics, if you leave the nomination of the president or chair of a tribunal or panel to the party-named arbitrators or to the parties, you end up with less, less diversity. When the institutions are involved, you end up with more diversity, and so, both in terms of age, gender, geographic location, and so on. But another feature also is the specialism. CAS arbitrators don't all know each other. I mean, there, as William said, there are, there are hundreds of CAS arbitrators, and we only have a meeting every four years, which not everybody can attend. So, you know, you, you don't have the knowledge of all the CAS arbitrators, who they are, what they can do, what their backgrounds are, whereas the institution has the rich institutional knowledge of you know, who all the arbitrators are and is uniquely placed to pick a panel chair in appropriate cases. So. 
Those are two of the benefits I see in the system. The final question is, what developments would you like to see the CAS introduce going forwards? I think one of the things, it's not in terms of procedures. Every system may be criticized, and and no matter what CAS will implement, then there will be further criticism about the new rules and the new procedure that will be put in place. I think there's no perfect system. I, I, I would say what I would have liked CAS to do, and I think what CAS needs to do in the future, is be more transparent. There's not enough communication. Obviously, CAS communicates a lot about the types of cases that are being dealt with, especially high-profile cases, where we see notes about uh, the outcomes of of very sensitive or high-profile arbitrations. But in terms of how CAS works, how arbitrators also perceive the system, uh, we've heard Jennifer and Andrew now for, for the last 30 minutes basically saying that they they agree with what CAS is doing and who have put forward very, very interesting points of views, which people criticizing the system are not familiar with, or that they are not aware of. And I, I think that if CAS were to communicate a little bit more in terms of how it works, how it's structured, why were some decisions taken in terms of the closed list, in terms of the panel chair being appointed in appeals cases by the division president, I think it would, it would serve the purposes of the, of the institution. Jennifer and Andrew, what are your thoughts? I was just going to say that there's nothing sort of on my mind that's burning that, you know, I think, oh, I really wish that the cast would change this or that or, or do this or that. I mean, of course, I, I agree with William in terms of his communication points, because I just think that that helps spread understanding and also just supports the mis- the mission of the cast. The more people feel they understand it and have insight into it, the more credibility the institution has. So I, I completely agree with that. I mean, just what I've observed since I've been involved with the cast is that the, that the cast seems to evolve incrementally depending on its experience across its caseload and the issues that come up that then lead it to realize either through the cases themselves or through feedback from users and arbitrators about changes that they should make. And this is the type of incremental evolution that I think is appropriate for an institution. And I don't think that institutions are are inherently, I would say, a bit conservative because again, you know, when you're going to an institution, you you don't want one that's going to change from day to night, night to day, you, you need to have a lot of consistency. So change comes relatively slowly and usually in reaction to concrete problems that, that have arisen across the caseload. And, and that's what I've seen CAS do. So I, in my view, that's appropriate. And Andrew, I come to you last of all. What, if anything, do you have to add or what are your thoughts? Well, picking up on points that both William and Jennifer have made, I think you could compare in some ways CAS to ICSID arbitration. You know, ICSID, which is, uh, for those who don't know, is the arbitration arm of the World Bank, has gone through a lot of debate and discussion and lack of knowledge, actually, about what ICSID arbitration is. When you look at the mainstream media, even sometimes specialized media, not really understanding ICSID arbitration, and that, that has happened sometimes with CAS arbitration. And I think William's point is a good one. It's really lack of knowledge. It's not because there's something bad or evil. 
And I can think back to a New York Times editorial, and I think it was 2004, about exit arbitration, and the heading of the editorial was The Secret Tribunals. So how do you combat those things? I think ICSID has taken some initiatives, CAS is taking some initiatives, and they do revolve around transparency. One thing that I find interesting in today's world of, of our, the current pandemic, and having sat through some hearings already in both commercial and sports arbitration since the pandemic, is the virtual world. And you can conduct a hearing virtually. You know, does that open the opportunity, and this is something CAS and ICSID have both explored already, the open, open an opportunity for more public hearings. And I think that knowledge is power, right? In the sense that you look at places like the Supreme Court of Canada, where I'm from, the Supreme Court of the United States, where hearings can be either broadcast live. I'll take the Supreme Court of Canada for an example. It is live. It's broadcast on television or on the internet. And I would say very few people watch it because once it was public and people could tune in, then they realized a lot of them that, well, this isn't so interesting after all. But had it been always behind closed doors and not accessible, well, then you, it gives it an aura. And the reality is, you know, CAS is very transparent and publishes a lot of material, as William said. I think one of the things ICSID did is it publishes more and more pleadings and information in cases as cases go along. I don't know if that's the right approach for CAS ultimately, but because CAS arbitration, like ICSID arbitration, often touches upon public domain issues, not always, but some of the cases are, are high, high, very high profile and public domain, promoting understanding of the process, which unfortunately even very qualified mainstream journalists don't always have, can only help the reputation of the institution and confidence in the in the process, but it's a it's it's a balancing act, and it's trying to find the uh, right ways to make the process better without making it more expensive and less efficient. We've run out of time, so we will wrap it up there. Thank you to Jennifer and Andrew for joining us and for providing their expert opinions. For analysis and articles on the CAS and sports arbitration more generally, please go to our website www.morgansl.com. If you're interested in signing up to our mailing list or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook for articles, updates, and news pieces. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.